is sovereign over history. Uh, you have been working out your purposes throughout all time. And as we focus now on this particular era of history, uh, in the 6th century BC, uh, we pray that we would uh, see more clearly uh, your power and your sovereign uh, overruling of all things. And we would take comfort for that in terms of trusting you for your overruling in our lives as well. Amen. Well, today we're going back to the year 605 BC. Uh, the Babylonian Empire is the emerging superpower of the day. Uh, Jerusalem is besieged by the enemy, uh, by the Babylonian armies, and surrenders. Uh, the fall of Jerusalem was actually brought about in three stages, uh, in 605 BC, uh, 597, and 587 BC. So this is just phase one. Now in phase one, the king of Babylon doesn't actually destroy the city. Instead, he just steals some of the articles from the temple and also takes back to Babylon some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. He takes them back as captives. Uh, this was just a foretaste of the mass deportations that would follow later. So Daniel was one of these first deportees from the nobility and the royal family. Uh, Daniel will actually spend most of his life living in exile in Babylon. In fact, he will spend the next 70 years there. We can only guess what it must have been like, um, but it must have been truly uh, very disconcerting and at times stressful. He would have probably been in his mid-teens when he was deported. Uh, can you imagine what it would be like to be that age when you're deported? It is very hard, of course, for us to appreciate living in, as we do in a stable Western democracy. Uh, being forcibly removed from your home and your homeland. Being taken as a captive to a foreign land there to spend the rest of your life. It does seem somewhat remote, doesn't it, from our own experience today. And indeed, we need to therefore ask this morning, what on earth has this got to do with us today? Well, the answer is, of course, uh, everything. Uh, Daniel is a very good book to follow our previous sermon series in James in the New Testament letter because it picks up on the theme of living as exiles in the world without succumbing to being worldly. Now, the image of uh, believers as exiles in the world was implied in the opening verses of James, uh, James 1 verse 1, to the 12 tribes, which is a way of referring to Christians, scattered among the nations. At 1 Peter 1, it states it more explicitly, uh, verse 1, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered. So do you see? Uh, this world is like a foreign country in which Christians are strangers. Uh, we are exiles. Our homeland isn't ultimately here. It is in heaven and in due course in the new creation. Is that how you see yourself today? Uh, do you see yourself as an exile living in a foreign land? Because that is a key part of our Christian identity. And that aspect of our identity will affect how we live. And it means that Daniel's experience of life in exile is very relevant for us today. There is a close parallel with our own situation. So let's look more closely at Daniel. Uh, he and the other deportees are brought to Babylon in disgrace. 
Uh, they're a conquered people. Their world has been shattered and things seem to be totally out of control. Now, as we saw last year in the Bible Overview sermon series, uh, this is the point when the tribe of Judah hits rock bottom. The forces of evil are in the ascendancy. Uh, the powerful tyrant Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar is sweeping all before him. He's unstoppable. Uh, God's enemies have the momentum. And it's the actions of Nebuchadnezzar that fill the horizon of this opening paragraph of Daniel's account. Uh, it is Nebuchadnezzar, we're told, who besieges Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar seizes articles from the temple and takes them back to his own temple in Babylon. It's Nebuchadnezzar who forcibly abducts the best of the Israelite young men to serve him back in Babylon. Evil has the upper hand. God's cause seems to be in crisis. It felt like that in the 6th century BC. It also felt like that in 33 AD. The chief priests plotted. Judas betrayed. The guards arrested. The Sanhedrin mistried. The soldiers executed. Evil is active. It's on the front foot. For God's people, things feel out of control. They are pushed around and defeated. They are powerless pawns in the hand of this powerful pagan king. It seems that evil has the upper hand. The pressing question is this. How do you keep going and serving God in a world which does not recognize him? How do you live for God as an exile? How do you keep going when evil and hardship seem to be in control and God's people appear powerless and helpless? You see, these are the tensions that have not eased with the passage of time. These tensions remain very real for us today as they were for them then. Is that how you feel personally sometimes, maybe even now? Things keep happening to you, and it feels like you are helpless and out of control. You say to yourself, if I was in charge, I would have a more stable job. I'd be in a relationship. My health wouldn't keep playing up. I wouldn't be in debt. I'd be less pressured. But you don't feel in control. Things keep happening to you, and you feel helpless and powerless. Is it not how we also feel sometimes on a national scale when we look at what's happening in our nation? We do, of course, live in an increasingly secular society. And it's not just indifferent, but in some sectors actively hostile to Christianity. Uh, laws are passed that go against biblical teaching. Christ is ridiculed in the media. The curriculum in our schools is under attack, as is Scripture. Does it not sometimes feel out of control? Does it not sometimes feel like evil is in the ascendancy and that we're being merely reactive? What we are witnessing then in the time of Daniel and now in our present day is the clash of two kingdoms. 
Uh, this, of course, is the plot line of the whole Bible. It starts in Genesis chapter three. The seed of Adam and the seed of the serpent are thereafter in constant conflict. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. And in Daniel, God's people are caught in the clash of these two kingdoms. Uh, did you notice there are two kings, Jehoiakim and Nebuchadnezzar? There are two lands, Israel and Babylonia. There are two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. Two gods, the Lord and Nebuchadnezzar's god, Marduk. And two temples, the house of God and the house of the Babylonian gods. And things are not going well for God's kingdom, it would seem. Evil appears to be getting the other hand. It's actually interesting that so much attention is placed on the removal of the temple articles and the repositioning of them back to Babylon. If you or I were summarizing the horror of the exile, I'm not sure that that is a detail that we would have particularly focused on. And yet, what is actually happening is very significant. The transfer of these articles from the, the Jerusalem temple to the temple of Marduk is far more than just the pillaging of artifacts for a private collection. It is religiously symbolic. It's the way of saying, our God is more powerful than your God. Your God is powerless to stop us taking anything we want, including the articles from his temple. And so these articles are effectively trophies of victory. And it's Marduk, it would seem, who is the victor. There are echoes here of another national tragedy hundreds of years prior to this, recorded in 1 Samuel 5. If you remember, Israel is in battle with their nemesis, the enemy, the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines are victorious over them. The Israelites are routed. And in the confusion, the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. Uh, that is, of course, the thing which has been made popular by Indiana Jones in our time with the, uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, that was the chest in which uh, the Ten Commandments resided, and it represented the very presence of God amongst his people. And the Ark is captured. The Philistines have it in their possession, and they take it back into their territory, and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And there it is, the Ark of the Covenant, a trophy of victory for the Philistines. And Dagon, it would seem, is declared victorious over Yahweh. It seems like evil has the upper hand. Now, we would be unwise to move over the weight and the tragedy of what is happening here too quickly. It is right for us to feel the true weight of what is happening. It's important to grieve and lament the horrific nature of evil and suffering in our world and in our lives. Expressing our sorrow is an important part of grieving and processing. And indeed, the lament of the exiled Israelites is recorded for us in Psalm 137. It says this, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. 
There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing one of your songs of Zion. But how can we sing the song of the Lord while in a foreign land? They are heartbroken. They are grieving. They are lamenting. And indeed, a whole book of the Old Testament is allocated just to their lament. The book of Lamentations, of course. Defeat for God's people matters. It is horrific and it should not be. Uh, Sometimes the tragedy is due to our sin and our mistakes and our poor choices. Uh, Israel's defeat was an enactment of God's covenant curses. Uh, Centuries of disobedience and spiritual adultery had brought Judah to this point. They now experienced the train wreck of God's judgment. But other times, it is not due to our sin or our mistakes. At other times, we just suffer the collateral damage of living in a fallen, fractured world. The loss of our health or the loss of loved ones. And it is not right. It is right to be grieved and to be outraged by it because it is not the way that God intended the world to be. Do you remember when Jesus is standing at the tomb of his friend Lazarus? And the shortest verse of the Bible there states, of course, Jesus wept. But correctly translated, it should be Jesus snorted. It's a sort of an expression of rage. This is not the way it should be. And Jesus there is reflecting on the tragedy and the weight of the creation and it being marred and affected by sin. And so we should grieve and lament and feel the weight when we experience that or when we see that happening to God's people. Uh, I've recommended before a great book to help people in uh, process their grief. It's a book called Sacred Sorrow by Michael Card. And I'd commend that to you again. When the name of Jesus is mocked, it is a weighty thing. We shouldn't just shrug our shoulders. When the church of Christ is afflicted or suffers defeat, it is not right. We should feel the weight of it and we should grieve it. And of course, it is right to then pray and to cry out, How long, O Lord? It is right to pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what should we do when things feel out of control? How should we live as exiles when we are feeling the weight of living as exiles in a foreign land and a foreign world? Well, we need to remind ourselves of something that we already know in our heads but we need to apply it afresh to our hearts. It's that migration from head to heart which we need to continually do. And there are two things particularly we need to remember when things are out of control. And the first is this. Remember God is still in control. When evil is active and it seems to be on the front foot, God even then is still in control. Did you notice in verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1 the insight given as to who was really driving this national tragedy? Verse 2 again. 
And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Do you see? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was active, but God was proactive. Uh, God was using Nebuchadnezzar's evil intent to serve his good purposes. You see, defeat for God's people is not the same as defeat for God. And 600 years later, we again dramatically see God's sovereign ordaining of all things in the face of unspeakable evil. This is, of course, after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. This is what the Apostle Peter declared shortly after Christ's ascension, Acts 2.23. This man, speaking of Jesus, of course, was handed over to you, that is the Jews, by God's set purposes and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. It was all according to God's set purposes and foreknowledge. The Jews were busy in wickedness, but God ultimately ordained what would happen. And amidst the murky darkness of evil, God brings about the salvation of the world. You see, God is behind every detail of life. He is weaving together the threads of history to make the most wonderful tapestry imaginable. Uh, We are in situations today, personally and nationally, maybe because of sin, as was Israel, or circumstances. But we are where we are, ultimately, because God allows it. Whether it be the passage of anti-biblical legislation or an accident or a dark period of life, behind it is the powerful and good rule of God. And to remember this makes a difference to how we respond in such situations. We can trust God rather than sinking into despair and into bitterness. You will recall, of course, the tragic death of the four children in that drunk driving accident here in Oatlands on the 1st of February this year. Uh, The family was a Christian family uh, and they lost uh, three of their children and, of course, one of their cousins. In their statements, the family revealed how their Christian faith had shaped their response to their darkest hour. And here are some of the excerpts from their statements. They said this. This is an unimaginable tragedy, unfathomable beyond all description. What is life without your children? How and where do you begin to pick up the pieces so that we may be effective parents to our three remaining angels? Well, we start with forgiveness. We forgive the driver that killed our innocent children. His actions will be met before the earthly and heavenly judge. Our faith in Jesus Christ remains the foundation of our family and we believe it will continue to help us through this difficult time. It is our hope that through this all will know that no matter the pain or the despair, God will be a safeguard through this dark valley. God is in control and eternity sits in the palm of his divine hand. Our life here on earth 
is but a vapor in comparison to his eternal plans and the purpose God holds for his children. May the peace of God through Jesus Christ be with us all. Isn't that an incredible statement of trust in God's sovereign ordaining in the face of such unimaginable tragedy? They're holding on to the fact that God is still in control and it's helping them move forward without slipping into despair or bitterness. So firstly, therefore, remember that God is in control, but that is not all. The second thing we need to remember is that God's good purposes will prevail. It is in the end, God who will win and not evil. Nebuchadnezzar takes the temple articles to Babylon, and if you were reading it in your uh, hard copy Bible, you'd see in the the footnote of the NIV, it says um, Babylonia is actually in the original, using the Hebrew word, Shinar. Now, Shinar is an ancient name for the area of Babylonia, modern-day Iraq. And the name Shinar takes us back to an ancient time and an ancient incident in the history of that land. You see, it was in Babylonia that the infamous Tower of Babel was built. And here we have another picture of it. Of course, this is recorded for us in Genesis 11. Uh, At the Tower of Babel, human beings unite together in an attempt to reestablish the lost Eden paradise. But of course, they do it on their own terms. Uh, They do it without reference to God. And God knows, of course, any attempt to build paradise without him will always be doomed to disappointment and to failure. And this, of course, is the repeated lesson of history. And so God intervenes and God frustrates their plans. Now comes the time of Daniel. Imagine what it would be like for these Israelites in Babylon, mighty Babylon. Uh, Here we have uh, an artist's picture of, it wasn't that one I was after, it was the, uh, the more glorious, splendid one. We have uh, I had a, a two, uh, three pictures in total, one of Babylon in its glory. Yes, there we go. Thank you. That looks far better, far more impressive. <laughs> you know where we're going there, don't you? <laughs> yes, here it is in all its glory. Um, Babylon, uh, one of the, uh, an incredible civilization, uh, the likes of which the world has never seen. Uh, it had stunning military power. It had the latest technology. It had wealth and unimaginable architecture. And, of course, the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You see, it would have been easy for the Israelites to be completely overawed by it. But the mention of Shinar is a reminder that Babylon was nothing new. It was just another Babel. It was another attempt to build a paradise without God. And where is it now? That looks a bit better. Yes, Uh, not as impressive now, is it? Nothing but a crumbling pile of bricks. You see, in our own day, whole cultures and systems and economies are built without reference to God. Uh, They are constructed purely for human glory and human security. 
What do we see in Sydney? Majestic buildings that whisper permanence and success and security. Uh, They offer us the world in return for our allegiance. But of course, it's nothing more than a facade. Economies and institutions can crumble in a day. Uh, We witnessed it in 2009 with the GFC. We may be seeing it again with the COVID-19 virus crisis. Of course, economists are now starting to suggest that it may tip many economies into recession. So as believers, we mustn't be in awe of any movement or structure that sets itself up without reference to God. For ultimately, their feet are made of clay. They are just another Babel. And it is wise, therefore, to beware investing too much of our hope in them. The only sure foundation for the house of our life is the rock of Jesus. Not only should we remember what happens to Babels, but also what happens when God is exiled. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 5, what happens when the ark, that is God's presence, is captured and placed in the Philistine temple? Well, uh, the next morning the Philistines get up, they go to the temple, and the statue of Dagon has fallen flat on its face before the ark. So what do they do? Of course, uh, they do what all people do when their idols fail them, they prop it up again. And yet the next day, they go to their temple, and this time the statue of Dagon has not only fallen over before the ark, but has been smashed to pieces. When God is captured and exiled, it is always God's enemies who need to watch out. Uh, Dagon doesn't fare too well. His head literally rolls out of the door. And as the vessels of God and the people of God are captured and taken into Babylonian captivity, we are meant to feel a sense of outrage. This should not be. But we should also remember who ultimately will prevail. And it is a cause for hope. The temple vessels and the people of God are like seeds planted under the concrete slab of the Babylonian empire. And it's just a matter of time until the seeds grow to maturity and crack and smash the concrete by the power of God. Uh, This is what we will repeatedly see in the book of Daniel. It's the God of Israel who is the one and only all-powerful God. And it is the kingdom of of the God of Israel, that will ultimately prevail. 600 years later in the Bible, the very presence of God is again captured. This time it is Jesus. He is exiled into a place called death. He is constrained under enemy rule. It's an outrage. The Son of God in a tomb. This should not be. But of course, that's not the end of the story. And it's God's enemies who in the final analysis come off worst. And sure enough, in a matter of days, death is defeated. It is shattered into pieces. Even in the face of the worst defeat, even in the face of death, God wins. So when things seem out of control, remember God is still in control. And he will win in the end.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this powerful historical narrative uh, which intersects with many other areas of Scripture and reveals those abiding principles that life often in a fallen world does seem to be out of control. It is the clash of two kingdoms, but you ultimately are in control and you ultimately, your purposes will prevail. Help us to never lose sight of that. Help us to remind our hearts of that, even though we know that in our heads. Help us to remind our hearts and keep reapplying that truth to our hearts as we go through life and as we face different situations where things do seem out of control. And may we do that for our comfort and for the strengthening of our faith and our Christian journey and for your glory. Amen.